Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Just stand, please, for the reading of the Word of God. Reading out of Luke chapter 1, verse 67. Then his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and gave this prophecy. Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he had visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies. And from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We've been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, speaking of John the Baptist, to be called, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins because of God's tender mercy The morning light from heaven is about to break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide us to the path of peace. The final verse, John grew up and became strong in spirit and lived in the wilderness until he began his public ministry to Israel. Father, I pray your blessing and anointing upon your word and that you'd open our hearts and minds to receive this day in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This passage of scripture that I just read is the first chapter of the book of Luke. And to give you context of what's taking place and also understand the mercy that I've delivered to you today, um, I am not reading the entire chapter. It's 80 verses long, okay? Um, Probably the longest chapter, I suspect, in the New Testament. Uh, basically, at a time when Herod's king of Judea, there's this priest named Zechariah. And he's a member of a priest that descends from Aaron, Moses' um, brother. He has a wife named Elizabeth, and they have no children. And they're getting old. Um, one day, Zechariah is serving God in the temple, and it was his responsibility to go in to the whole place and to deliver a type of sacrifice. Everyone else was waiting outside for him. A big crowd had gathered. They're all praying and, and waiting for the incense being burned, etc. So Zechariah is in the sanctuary when suddenly we're told in this chapter that an angel of the Lord appears to him and stands uh, very specifically uh, to the right of the incense altar. And Zechariah is pretty shaken and overcome. In fact, whenever angels show up, everyone always is afraid. They always freak out. And, and the angels always say the same thing, don't be afraid. Okay, it happens every single time. Um, angels are just evidently very scary, very scary creatures. And so um, he's shaken. He's overwhelmed with fear. And the angel says, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. 
Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you're to name him John. You will have great joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the eyes of the Lord. And then gives him some instructions and talks about he's going to turn many people to God. Uh, he's going to man, be a man with the spirit and power of Elijah. Um, he's going to prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. And then the angel says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. And that's interesting. He says, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, echoes um, the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. So at the end of Malachi, chapter 4, verse 6, it talks about someone who's going to come, who's going to be like Elijah, that's going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children of their fathers. And so now we pick up after 400 years of silence, we pick up again now with um, an echo of Malachi as this is being prophesied over this little child who's yet to come. And then and a little side note as well too, we talked about it briefly last week, but in that intertestamental period, that period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, um, for about 400 years, uh, there were people who wanted to follow God that were not Jewish. They were Gentiles, but they were caught with, with the nature of God. And so there was devised a system of ritual cleansing that we now call baptism, water baptism, was done as a way of formally recognizing and drawing them into being a worshiper of God. But it was for Gentiles, only Gentiles. If you were a Jew, it was assumed that you're just born into it, that you're part of the, what was called the covenant or the relationship between God and Israel. When John comes along, he shatters this. It's very controversial because his ministry is one of repentance, talking to everyone, you all need to repent of your sin and come to God. And then he baptizes those who are prepared to repent of their sin, Jews as well as Gentiles. And it's like, wait a minute, we're Jewish. We're just automatically in good with God, right? And he's like, no, it does not matter your ethnicity. It does not matter your background, your parents, uh, all the other good works you do, whatever it is, until you repent of your sin and you come to God, and accept his grace, then, then you're not included. So that's why he was called John the Baptist. It had nothing to do with his denominational affiliation, okay? For all we know, he's Presbyterian. I don't know. I don't, he wasn't, okay? That was way before those things existed. So what he would baptize people. So this whole thing's being given to Zechariah, and it's all news to him. It's a, it's a, it's a startling thing. And, and so he says, how can I be sure this will happen? I'm an old man, and my wife... She's an old lady. You know, how does this work that we're going to have a kid? I'm, I'm old. She's old. And, you know, and the response of the angel is interesting. The angel says, I am Gabriel. Okay, I stand before God. I'm bringing you this message and you're questioning me? Wow, to have things change. For one moment, you're scared stiff. And the next minute, you're telling me a liar. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing this part, all right? It's, a, it's funny how we get very used to things that shock us or, or terrify us or that we really respect, and there's a familiarity that creeps in. And so Zechariah says, it's just, it's, it's the, the scripture is, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. It was he who sent me to bring you this good news. But now, since you didn't believe what I said, you're going to be silent and unable to speak until the child is born. For my words will certainly be fulfilled at the proper time. And that's the end of the line. Everyone's waiting outside for Zechariah. The crowd's waiting for him to finish with the sacrifices and come on out. When he finally comes out, he can't speak. They know something's happened, 
but they don't know what's happened. When his week of service is done, he goes home, and afterwards his wife becomes pregnant. And as time passes, um, and the time continues to pass, then there's this baby. The baby is born. When he's eight days old, all the family and everyone gathers together for both the dedication and the circumcision that was going to take place. And they're ready to name the child, and everyone wants to name him Zechariah after his dad. And Elizabeth says, no, his name is to be John. I say, what? There's no one in all your family by that name. So they use gestures to ask the baby's father, Zechariah, what do you want to name him? He motions for a writing tablet. They bring him the tablet. And to everyone's surprise, he writes down, his name is John. And instantly, he could speak again. Realized that he'd not been able to speak for how long? Nine months. That's exactly how that works, generally speaking, folks, if you haven't figured that out, okay? So for nine months, he's not speaking. Elizabeth's happy about that, incidentally. That's a side note. It's, it's not in the literature, but I'm sure it's there, okay? But now he's speaking, and he, he's, 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 he's saying his name is John, and everyone's kind of caught up with awe and says, what this child is going to turn out to be? That is the context for the passage that we read as our text this morning. So now with that context, let's take a look at it again. His father Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives this prophecy, praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he's visited and redeemed his people. So something about what his son's going to do is tied into the redemption of the people. He has sent us a mighty Savior, not his son, but he's prophesying about the Savior that's going to come that his son's going to point to from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now, and this, this line to me is so poignant today in particular, now we'll be saved from our enemies, from all who hate us. Anti-Semitism is the, the most ancient and oldest of racism. And there's a reason for it. There's a reason why it burns so bright today. There's a hatred. The evil of this world hates the Jews. And I'm not, I'm not saying all Jewish people are greater, all Israel's greater, but there's something of a covenant that God made with these people for an express purpose, and that was to bring through the Messiah. It says, now we saved. He's remembering his sacred covenant, the oath he swore to Abraham. We can be rescued from our enemies and live in righteousness and holiness. And then verse 76, and now you, my little son, you're going to be called a prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You're going to prepare the way for the Lord. If there's a word I'd have as a subtitle to our conversation, the first of four offerings for you here over the next four weeks' time, it would be the light of the world prepare or preparation. We'll tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. And then these next two verses are really, really interesting to me. Because these next two verses say this, because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us. And then verse 79, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide us to the path of peace. And the last one just talks about his going into public ministry or revival and baptism. But to give light to those who sit in darkness, in the shadow of death, in the shadow of death. He's echoing. Zechariah is directly echoing a passage of Scripture. And in that passage of Scripture... It's Isaiah, the oldest and best prophet probably you have out there. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, he had prophesied at this time. He says, a people who walk in darkness will see a great light. 
For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. This is a direct echoing that comes into verse 79 when he says to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. In the Isaiah passage 9-2, who walk in darkness see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. That land of deep darkness is translated more correctly as where death casts its shadow. Where death casts its shadow. So in Zechariah saying to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, he's echoing the prophet. And you want to know what something is really interesting beyond that even? Is you've got Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2 that's talking about these people who walk in darkness and see a great light. Jesus after he is tempted in the desert in the 40 days, and he's going to begin his ministry, he moves from Nazareth to Capernaum. And the location he's at is a place that, that, that Isaiah references as to where the Messiah is going to come from. And so in Matthew chapter 4, 16, it reads this, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. For those who lived in the land where death casts its shadow, a light has shined. And so there's a direct line from what Zechariah's prophecy over John is as he's preparing the way to what Isaiah was saying way back then to what then is pointed out when Jesus begins his ministry. But one interesting thing, and we're not going to spend any more time on this because this is really interesting stuff and we don't have time today, all right? But it's really interesting stuff and we're going to come back to this, all right? What, what's interesting is the, the language that's used. Isaiah says those who walk currently. Matthew says who sat it's almost saying what was, what was before, but now something has changed. And so there's something about that that we're going to dive into, but not today, okay? But I want you to capture this whole thing of what he's saying. So this whole preparatory action that takes place. Now, having gotten into all that, um, there's another element that I want you to understand. Um, years back, first time I ever was out of the country, I was 15, and um, this was in a time period long, long ago where when you went to the airport, your, your family could take you right up and put you on the plane and wave goodbye at the gate. You do that today, you will be shot, okay? But that was the day. You could go and do that. I mean, it was incredible. So we fly out. And it was a trip that was to Israel at one point in time. And at one point in time, as the flight's going along, I saw these guys get up. They were Orthodox Jews. And they would wrap little leather boxes around their wrist and on their forehead. And, and they would begin to walk around the cabin. And, 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 and as they would be walking, they'd be moving like this. Or sometimes they'd stand and they'd be moving like this the whole time, back and forth. And, and I knew enough to know what the boxes were. I didn't understand the rest until many years later. The boxes are taken out of the book of Deuteronomy where it said to take scriptures and keep them ever before you. And so they put little scriptures in leather boxes and put them on their wrists and did literally put it on their foreheads so it would be ever before them. But this action that they would do, this, this motion and movement, I didn't understand what that was about. Years later, I came to understand. Um, now, what they were doing is something called to daven or davening. Now, some of you are aware that one of our keyboards players' name is Davin from Philadelphia. That's not who we're talking about, okay? Um, Davin sways, but he doesn't Davin, okay? Um, <laughs> the spelling of his name is D-A-V-I-N. The spelling of this is D-A-V-E-N. And it has to do with praying. But praying specifically and linked to a specific passage of Scripture 
Now, I will confess to you, if you, if you see me sometimes during worship, I, I don't dab in, but I do sway, okay? Um, I, I, I find myself, and sometimes those of you who are, who are musically adept, um, and actually some of us who aren't, we just sway to the music. We're caught with the moment of worship. But we're just caught with the moment of worship. We're just swaying. There's, with, with what they're doing here, it's very, very specific. And um, it has to do... Uh, with several different things. One of those has to do with what is referred to as the Shema Israel. Now, I want to give a first attention to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, because this is where the davening comes in. In Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, we are told, the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of his being. And so the idea is, is that once we come to faith, in Christ, or in the Jewish tradition, when you come an understanding of Torah or of the law and an understanding of who God is, and you embrace that, that, that you also become a type of light or a type of candle. And you draw from that original, and that we're like this candle before God. Now, another thing that they would do is, that the Jewish Orthodox would do, is like I said, the Shema Israel, which is a prayer that would be said, rooted in Deuteronomy. Um, twice a day, and if they're really observant, it will be done the last words before they go to bed at night. And the phrase is, Hear, O Israel, Yahweh or the Lord is our God, Yahweh or the Lord is one. So, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Twice a day, last thing before going to bed at night. Um, when they would say this and, and, and repeat this prayer, it was tradition to cover one's eyes with the right hand as they would pronounce this prayer. They would do this in order to concentrate on the meaning of the verse. That was the purpose as to why they would do it, but there's some deeper reason. The old rabbis um, through the Talmud would say that the blind are full of light. Those who are blind, they can't literally see it all. They are full of light. And what do they mean by that? They thought because one's physical sight, which gazes out at the mundane and materialistic world, often contradicts and weakens one's inner spiritual sight. And so when someone's blind, they're not distracted by the mundane or the materialistic, and their more ability to see who God is truly and to have insight spiritually. Um, they would say, the rabbis of old, that we see and smell and taste and feel the world around us while divinity is an abstract um, spiritual reality. And so they would cover their eyes as they would say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, to focus more deeply upon the truth of who God is, that he's the ultimate reality. They would say that neither what our eye sees nor what we experience naturally intuitively is the true reality, that God is the truest reality. And by covering our eyes, we're indicating our desire to disconnect from the physical and connect to the spiritual. And so imagine that, that twice a day they would stop and say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And they would do that not only to focus and to emphasize that the unseen is important in the spiritual realm and not to be caught up with the materialistic mundane, but also that when they would then open their eyes, that they would begin to look at the world differently in a different fashion and through the eyes of God. So as this goes along 
And this whole idea of, 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 of setting aside the mundane and materialistic, that's one of the primary things I want to bring to you today. We're about to enter into the most materialistic time period in our society. And our eyes get caught up with all the different things that, that we have to do. And, and what we're thinking about is not necessarily a godly spiritual undertone, which is supposed to be part of this whole thing and at the core of it. And so what we're thinking about is our Amazon account and what we need to order with two-day waiting. We're thinking about cooking and deadlines and taxes. We're thinking about, about year-end issues. We're thinking about the relatives that, um, that are going to come to our party at holiday. And then we also are thinking about the one relative that's also going to come to our party and, and how we're going to handle that relative and how we will shape that. And boy, we wish they wouldn't come and couldn't they die? Um, you know, I mean, we get dark at the holidays, guys. I mean, it just gets dark. So all these things fill our thoughts and fill our minds. And, and, and perhaps it would behoove us in the season that at some point in time and all the things of what you're doing that, that maybe quietly by yourself, you just pause for a moment and cover your eyes and just say, here, not O Israel, not O Rock Point, but maybe as I did earlier in preparing for this evening and it struck me, as I just paused for a moment, I said, Here, oh Randy, <laughs> the Lord is your God, and the Lord is one. And to try to get quiet and settle something within my own spirit, so that when I take that hand away, that I begin to look at the world differently. And so that alone, I would encourage you in this season, pause, stop, when you find all these things ratcheting up around you, and just pause, and whether you put your hand there or not, Pause and stop, but back to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27. Because there's something else that's going on here. It's the spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of his being. And, and what the old rabbis would have said is that to daven is to pray, and, and to pray is to be like that candle. And they would say that the Torah, the law, is a flame. And when the Jews learn Torah, the candle of God, the soul, is lit on fire. And just as the flame doesn't stand still, so too the Jewish soul, when lit, constantly moves about. And so to put that into a current context, that when we come to Christ and we have an understanding of His grace, that there's something that lights within us. And that light, um, in the same way that the candle moves and sways, they would say that, that it sways and flickers as it attempts to tear free of its wick and ascend on high. So too our soul is engaged in a constant effort to escape the corporeality of this mundane world and cleave to its godly source. You could say that, and that's where the davening comes in, the movement comes in to, to make this Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27 come alive. But the translation of this breaks a little bit differently and a little more detailed. A little more accurate portrayal of this is, is found in the Living Bible. Same verse, Proverbs 20. It says, A man's conscience is the Lord's searchlight exposing his hidden motives. So our conscience or our spirit. So when we come to Christ, when we choose to pursue him, then he takes our conscience and he turns it like a spotlight on us. And as we reflect, as we get quiet, as we, as we consider, God, who are we before you and who are you to us and how do we relate and how do I please or displease you, then, then there's something that, that's worked within us and transformation is changed within us. So if davening is this soul being moved in shape, conscious as it comes in contact with God becomes a spotlight in our soul. 
and we become a type of light as we reflect and become more part of the light that originally lit us, if you will. Now I want to share with you really quickly the most bizarre Christmas story you're ever going to have in a Sunday service, okay? The application of this scripture. It's a well-known one, but I want to apply it here today. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. This is about a wedding. What you've got here are ten bridesmaids, and it's a parable that Jesus is talking about. And there were three stages to a Jewish wedding. The first stage was the engagement. It was a formal agreement between the dads. Sorry, ladies, that's how it was in the old days, all right? The second was the betrothal. It was a ceremony where mutual promises were made. Families got together and recognized it. And then the third was the marriage. <clears throat> Approximately one year later, the bridegroom would come at an unexpected time to claim his bride, and they'd have the party and the, and the wedding thing. Now, they would know the day oftentimes, maybe, but they never would know the time. It was a big part of the game and surprise and all its part of it. So your bridesmaids in those days would have a, a type <clears throat> of oil lamp. This is a simile of that to some degree. And there'd be oil inside with a wick outside of it. They'd light that and, and they would hold that and, and be ready to light when the, when the guy comes in instead of fireworks, okay, or, or other things. They'd, they'd raise these torches. It was a way of lighting up and, and having someone celebrate, all right? <clears throat> so according to the scripture... It says there were these 10 bridesmaids, and um, five were wise, and five, it says, were, were foolish. Um, and these girls were supposed to hold these camp. Now, you know, I'm sorry, this really just sidetracks me for a moment here. There was, when I was a kid, I was in a church service. It was a wedding, actually, uh, up in Flint, where I lived at the time. And the church was old style and had a, uh, what was called a privacy screen, which is about this high a piece of wood that would go in front of the choir loft that would be behind and it was a beautiful ceremony. It really stood out to me because the guys were all on this side, the girls were all on this side and had these long flowing dresses and they all held a candle. I'd never seen that before in a wedding. I haven't seen it since. Beautiful. They're all holding candles. Evidently, at one point in time, one of the people, one of the ladies got a little bit feeling ill or something and she tried to slip off and not cause a distraction. So she quietly slipping out. She got as far as just the inside of the, of the privacy screen when she fainted and fell. And that was enough, you know, you're hearing a thump, you know, and you're a little distracted, but everyone's still being cool about it. It's a formal gag. And so one of the groomsmen comes by around to try to check on her real quick. And as you come down, you see him drop to his knees. And evidently the candle had caught a portion of her clothing on fire. Just a small fire, okay, but it was a fire, okay? And so the guy's down here and you see him, all you see is the head come up and go. <laughs> I've never forgotten that, Okay. It has nothing to do with our message today. I'm sorry. It's like squirrel, okay? Okay, that was just, but it's bridesmaids holding candles, all right? You got me what I'm saying, all right? So, so these bridesmaids are holding these candles, and they, I don't know if they had flowing dresses and whatever, but the guy's taking so long that they fall asleep. Candles are still burning. They're falling asleep. Then suddenly it's announced he's coming. And so they get up, and they, they wipe everything off, and they're all set to go, and they light up the candles. Well, five of them didn't have any more oil in their candles. Or their, their, their lamps are dead. The other five had brought extra oil. <clears throat> so these five say, hey, can you give us some oil? We say, we can't. We only have enough for what we have here. Why don't you go shop something real quick? He's, he's coming, but maybe you can get to the 7-Eleven and get back in time, you know? So they take off. Well, while they're gone, the guy comes. The bridegroom comes. And in those days, they would lift up the lamps. They lit it up. They'd go in celebration and then went into the, the banquet hall and they'd seal the door shut because in those days... Um, it was an attractive thing to <clears throat> wedding crashers, not like the ones we have today, but they would literally crash the wedding with weapons, come in, steal the bride, you know, um, and drink all the Kool-Aid, everything else like that. It was just horrible people, all right? 
And so they locked the door. And so the scripture says these came back and, and want to get in. And they say, hey, we don't know who you are. We can't let anybody else in at that point. And so they're left out of the whole deal of what goes on. Jesus was using this as an analogy of preparing for his coming. He's the bridegroom. And communion, which we're going to have here in a moment of time, is actually also referenced as a type of, 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 of bridal party and stuff like this. These other ones weren't, weren't, weren't necessarily horrible. They were just foolish. Um, they, they, were, they were just not prudent. They were just thoughtless. They didn't recognize what was taking place in time. And so instead, they lose out on what's going on. The oil that is used in here is, is a type of, of the Holy Spirit. And so the idea is that we're, again, this light, this, this candle, this thing that's being lit from the primary source that, that shapes and reflects within us and brings us understanding and illumination. But the Holy Spirit is the oil that, that keeps that thing going. And it's a good representation of the Holy Spirit for a couple of, of reasons real quickly here. One is that oil lubricates. When the Holy Spirit's working in our own lives, then there's no friction between us as brothers and sisters. We wear on each other much better. Um, oil heals. It was a medicinal treatment. Oil warms, we know, and the season we're going into is used as a fuel for flame. Oil can invigorate when it's used to massage. Oil adorns when it's used as perfume. Oil polishes like to shine metal and it wipes away our grime and smooths out our, our rough edges. But mostly oil lights when it's burned in a lamp. It lights It casts light that we can see in our own heart and mind, but also helps us to see the world around us. The importance in this season as we go forward in our prime of preparation is not only to have eyes to see properly and and, and to have the light of God with it, but to have the Holy Spirit stoking that flame and keeping that lit. If we don't have that, if we don't have that, so how do we prepare ourselves for that. And this final point here, to be, to be a candle or a lamp before God. There's a passage in Matthew um, chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And this is the last passage I'll share with you today. It says, When you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have the reward. He's saying, look, don't stand on the street corners and, oh, dear God, or in the corner here, oh, dear God. We, we, had, a, we had a person, we've had a couple of you, we had one person years back who was just beautiful prayers, very public prayers. There are a lot of issues going on in their life, but the prayers were gorgeous, and people were drawn to that. They were getting a following, and Mickey and I were watching it very closely. And at one point in time, because of some steps we took to block some of their advance, they moved on. They eventually ended up pastoring a church and did massive damage to the body of Christ, massive damage. The external elements is not as important as what's going on inside. Don't be drawn to the the flash and the dash. Be drawn to the depth of the Holy Spirit. The scripture here is saying specifically, don't worry about praying publicly and all the, the show. Instead, he says, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you've shut your door, pray to your father who's in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. In the Orthodox Jewish Bible, it tries to, to co- incorporate some of the Hasidic and, or Orthodox um, Yiddish and otherwise into the Bible. In this passage, the same thing says, and whenever you daven, whenever you pray, whenever you, you, you light that flame, don't 
be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and, and daven in this way and street corners. But it says instead, whenever you daven, enter into the secret place. And that secret place. Do you have a secret place? Do you have a place that you, you, you have set aside for the purpose of prayer? That you draw into and, 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 and just get quiet before God? Is there anything like that that you have in your life? And if you don't, why is that? Jesus is telling us we need to find that secret place. One final thing here. Have you noticed, I mean, those of you who have put up Christmas lights, now things have improved dramatically since, you know, ancient times. <laughs> you know, when I was a kid. Um, and, and you have these lights. Now, you know how you put up the Christmas lights? And there's like a whole... These are wonderful because they're all a tangled mess and you have to untangle all of them. And, and in times past, you would plug it in and, oh, this light, this is so nice, this is wonderful. Um, the ones we had are the big bulbs and if one of them was dead, nothing lit. And here's the real fun part, you didn't know which one was dead. <laughs> and so you had to get a bulb that you knew worked and sometimes we got one that didn't work, but we didn't know it didn't work, and we're using that for our tester. And you take, you take years just to get ready for Christmas, okay? And so you'd have to unscrew each bulb and put that one in and tell it. It was, it was a wonderful Christmas tradition that we all could enjoy, and uh, um, I, I just thought it was terrible. Uh, one of the few times I almost heard my father swear. He didn't, but boy, did he come close. You know, we got these wonderful ones now because now you can pull one of these and um, you can have a dead one, and, and there is. There's a dead one right here. I marked it. This one's dead. But everything's still lit. Isn't that great? Oh, my gosh. Technology's wonderful. <laughs> but you know what's funny about this, I noticed, is this. If you pull it out, I don't know if you saw that. Let me do that again. If I pull it, actually disconnect it entirely. It actually has an effect on the others then. Isn't that kind of interesting? You got one that's, that's dead but nobody notices. They come out to church. And they sing songs. They even listen. And they're dead. They're not plugged in. They're not powered. They're not lit. I find it incredibly sad that nobody notices that. Maybe that's you. Maybe this morning you need to stop and part of your preparation for the holiday is to recognize your deadness. What really gets me is how when there's even just one absent, when we disconnect from the body, or more importantly, when we disconnect from Christ. But I think fellowship to one another. Fellowship in a community is, is, is the most horrible, terrible, painful experience to be part of a body of Christ. And the only thing worse is everything else. <laughs> it's challenging because we're human beings and we will disappoint each other and we will irritate each other and unless the Holy Spirit's oil is flowing really well, we'll drive each other nuts. But A, it's what we're commanded to do and B, it's the only place I think where healing is found really truly and where our rough edges are taken off and where God's searchlight is placed upon us. But when we pull away, not just us, Others are affected as well.
I'm glad we have the technology we have today. But I think there was a lesson to be learned by those old lights of way back and its dependency upon the power source and dependency upon one another. As you go into the season, the, the message I have for you today here is as we prepare is that you literally do that, that you prepare your heart and your mind, that you pause. Um, I, I want you to do something for me for a moment. And I'll, I'll say the, the line, but I'm going to ask you to insert your name. I'm going to ask you, and I, I didn't know if I would do this in second service, because you guys are a different crowd. And some of you are, are people that are just visiting. I know people, we ask you to do something that feels awkward or weird. And I, it's not my intention at all. But I'd like you to experience something for a moment. So I'm going to ask you in a moment just to take your right hand and, and to place it over your eyes. And I'm going to ask you to repeat in just a moment time. I'm going to ask you to repeat with me um, the Shema, Israel. But when we do it, instead of saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. I'm going to ask you to say, Hear, and something I did actually earlier this week in preparation, and it caught me. I don't know if it'll catch you, but it caught me. As I just paused for a moment in the privacy in my secret place, and I said, Hear, O Israel. And then I said, Here, O Rock Point. And then I said, Here. And this is where it got me. I said, Here, O Randy. Here, O Randy. The Lord is your God. The Lord is one. So I'm going to ask as we repeat this that you just use your name. You can say it quietly if you want to. But just say, Here, O, insert your name here. Don't say, Insert your name here. Okay? <laughs> But just, just say here, oh, and then if you continue on, or I'll say it for you either way. But can we do this? Just put your hand for a moment, just for a moment, and then just, just repeat with your name. Here, oh, Randy, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. The Lord is one. Just pause for a second. Okay. Take your hand down and open your eyes. And as you go into this season, I want to encourage you, look at it with different eyes. Realize the light that Christ brings to you, but also the light that you and I are supposed to bring to others. Realize that we're supposed to look at this world differently. Pause. Find that secret place. Let the oil of the Holy Spirit refresh your lamp. And then go and engage, but do it differently. And maybe look at that relative that you really were hoping wouldn't make it. Maybe you'll hear God's voice having you welcome them, maybe even giving you something that you're supposed to say to them, or very much, very possibly saying instead to you very quietly but very firmly, shut up. Don't say anything to them at all. Just love them. This morning we're going to receive communion, another time of meditation and quiet thought. You're welcome to join us if you're a follower of Christ. You don't have to be a member of this church. But you do need to be a follower of Christ. If you've not made that commitment, just let you pass you by. But as we do this, maybe just pause and maybe you just want to repeat the Shema a few times or maybe just your own prayer. Or maybe just ask for God's Holy Spirit. But whatever you do, kind of find that secret place in the moment of time and, and just let this moment be a time of refreshment. So, Father, we come to you, prepare our hearts and our minds to receive your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Let this service be a deep breath in your lungs. 
as you go into the week here, if you don't have a place, a quiet place that you designate for prayer, and it can be any place. It can be your bedside. It can be a literal closet if that's what you need to have. It, it can be driving in your car if you have a long commute. But if you don't have, but, but if it's your car, keep your eyes open. But, but, but wherever it's going to be, do you have a place that you go to refresh before the Spirit, to get the oil back into your life, to get plugged back in and powered back into Christ? Your candle before the Lord. You're meant to cast light, but you can't do it if, if you don't have the oil of the Holy Spirit working in you. And you don't have that unless you have a secret place and a place where you regularly go and, and get that quiet and cover your eyes if you need to. And then when, you've, when you come out of that time of prayer, look at this culture. Look at your work. Look at your family. Look at all these things with the eyes of Christ. Look at it differently and see what he might be saying to you in this season. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. Father, I pray your blessing that you continue to guide us and lead us um, ever deeper in until we arrive at that point there on Christmas Eve, Father God. So walk us through this, I pray. We commit these things in your hands in truth, thanksgiving. We thank you for John and his ministry, the Baptist. We thank you for your word. Guide us into your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.